You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Investigation of the Easter massacres in Sri Lanka continues... For all the concern about online inspiration, some of the coordination seems to have been face-to-face. Symantec describes a crypto-jacking campaign, Beepy, that propagates using Eternal Blue. An Oracle web server Zero Days reported. Recorded Future describes the commodified black market for credential stuffing. And there's a cabinet dust-up in the UK over a leak about the government's plans for Huawei. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 26, 2019. Investigation into the Easter massacres in Sri Lanka has identified at least eight of the nine suicide bombers. Three were members of one of the country's wealthiest families. The family patriarch is among those who've been arrested. The family's fortune is said to have been made trading spices. One of those believed to have been a leader of the closely coordinated attacks was among the bombers. Jaran Hashim, the imam notorious for online sermons urging the extermination of unbelievers, died when he detonated his bomb at the Shangri-La Hotel in Colombo. Some are now retrospectively connecting Hashim to the defacement last year of Buddhist shrines in Mawanella, an earlier jihadist action that some now, again retrospectively, see as a forerunner of the Easter massacres. He apparently rented a house in Mawanella for a few months. He had made himself unwelcome at the local mosque, from where he concentrated on face-to-face indoctrination of local youth. So not all of his business was conducted online. Controversy persists over how clear warnings of an imminent attack could have gone so generally overlooked. This isn't a matter of missing subtle clues, but of police on the ground apparently not paying attention to an alert passed through official channels. Foreign intelligence services, notably India's, are also said to have warned Sri Lanka that jihadist violence was in the works. And there's more intelligence chatter sufficient to warn tourists that further attacks may be in the offing, even with the extensive police sweeps being conducted throughout the country. The death toll in the attacks is proving, as is often the case, to be difficult to arrive at. The authorities are now suggesting that the final count of losses may be closer to the earlier figure of 250 than the more recently cited 300. Whatever the final toll, it's tragic by any estimation. President Sirisenya has vowed to search every house, if necessary, to bring an end to the violence. Protection is being extended to mosques, lest there be a backlash to the bombings. Researchers at security firm Symantec are tracking a cryptojacking campaign that for now at least is concentrating on businesses in China, although a minority of the infections, about 20%, have hit South Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. They're calling the campaign Beepy, and the worm involved appears to be using the external blue exploit to spread. 
So far, BPI has left individual users largely alone. It shows a distinct preference for enterprises. The initial infection vector has generally been a phishing email carrying its payload in an attached Excel file. It uses unpatched machines to establish a beachhead in a targeted network and then spreads from there. Eternal Blue is the most common means of propagation, but BPI has also been observed using the credential theft tool Hacktool Mimikatz. BPI is a file-based as opposed to a browser-based coin miner, and so it works faster than competitors that operate from the browser. This can translate to much greater gains for the crypto jackers. As Symantec points out, a 100,000-strong, browser-based botnet could pull in about $30,000 in 30 days. A file-based competitor of the same size would net $750,000. So do the math. Symantec offers some advice on protecting yourself from crypto jacking. As always, be aware of phishing and on your guard when opening emails, and especially when following links or opening attachments. And watch for spikes in battery usage. If you see your battery draining faster than it ought, scan the device for the presence of coin mining malware. KnownSec404 has discovered a zero-day in Oracle web servers, two WebLogic components, WLS9Async and WLSWSAT, are susceptible to remote code execution. There's no patch yet, and KnownSec404 recommends either removing the two problematic components and restarting the servers, or firewalling the paths an attack might exploit. A recorded future study indicates the degree to which credential stuffing tools have become widely available criminal commodities. It's possible to mount a credential stuffing campaign for as little as $550. That investment is often repaid 20-fold. It's a criminal-to-criminal market. The money's made in reselling stolen credentials. Recorded Future says there are six major toolkits available, with dozens of also-rans being hawked in dark web markets. As always, multi-factor authentication and especially getting into the habit of not reusing passwords are good ideas. A cabinet dust-up over who talked out of school about a pending decision by Her Majesty's government to allow Huawei participation in the UK's 5G build-out, at least in non-core technologies like antennas, may give rise to a criminal investigation, the Telegraph reports. But senior cabinet members are all saying the same thing. I don't know nothing. I didn't do nothing. I'll leave those capers to the wide boys, sunshine. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. 
Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is Dean of Research for the Sands Institute, and he's also host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's great to have you back. Um, you have been tracking some increases in DHCP client vulnerabilities. What are you seeing here? Yes, there has been really sort of a rash of these vulnerabilities, in particular in Windows at the beginning of the year. I think there are a total of five different vulnerabilities that were sort of spread through the January and the March patch set. And the problem with these vulnerabilities is there hasn't really been a public exploit for it yet, but they're really very dangerous, uh, in particular for users that have to connect sort of to these open wireless access points. Hmm. So give us an example of what would be the problem here. So uh, you're at a hotel, and you know, we all know hotel networks are often compromised, in particular to target uh, visitors to the hotel. And uh, you're getting an IP address from the hotel's wireless network. DHCP has to be working. There's really no other good way of doing this. If the DHCP server of the hotel is now compromised, is sending you a crafted response, uh, the attacker could actually be executing arbitrary code on your system. Hmm. Now, what about, uh, are you going to get any help with firewalls or if you're using a VPN? Not really, because uh, all of this really happens before, in particular, VPN matters. And even the firewall, the firewall has to allow these DHCP responses back in. Uh, there's really no good way sort of to whitelist anything there may be a chance where sort of some intrusion protection system or so closer inspects the payload uh, of these DHCP responses, but haven't really seen anything good in particular when it comes uh, to these uh, DHCP exploits. So what do you recommend here? How can folks uh, protect themselves? Well, the bad thing is there isn't really much you can do other than being careful, uh, watching for odd behavior, trying to avoid these wireless networks, of course, but realistically, if you're traveling a lot, uh, there isn't much you can do to avoid them. You could use your cell phone, for example. That's, of course, always a better option. Uh, use some kind of uh, LTE connectivity or so versus the hotel network. But then again, you, you may find yourself in a hotel with bad uh, reception. That has happened to me uh, where you really have to rely on the hotel network or whatever the open wireless access point or network is that you're using. Should we be waiting for some patches here? What's, what's the ultimate resolution going to be? 
Yeah, actually, the best thing you can do is apply patches. And, you know, Microsoft came out uh, with patches. Like I said, right now, there is at least no public exploit available uh, for uh, this particular vulnerability. The last one that we have seen sort of widely exploited like this uh, was uh, back the Shellshock vulnerability. That one was exploitable against Linux DHCP clients. But here, of course, with Windows being affected, uh, you have a much larger population that's potentially vulnerable. Hmm. All right. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Anura Fernando. He's Chief Innovation Architect for Medical Systems Interoperability and Security at UL, Underwriters Laboratories. UL has been a key player in the development of standards covering the testing and certification for the cybersecurity of connected medical devices. In fact, the FDA recently recognized UL Standard 2900-2-1, which addresses those concerns. Medical device cybersecurity is a growing area that's being addressed in terms of critical infrastructure protection. Um, it was really one of three domains that was initially identified by the federal government here in the U.S. Uh, when uh, breaches really started to peak uh, a few years ago. The other two are industrial control and um, consumer security products and, and building products and so forth. What you all tried to do is to develop some standards to try to address some of the, the core outstanding issues around cybersecurity. There are currently a, a number of different standards that are out there to address product level cybersecurity. And there are even some that, that deal with secure development processes and so forth for uh, healthcare technologies, medical devices, and, and other types of technologies used to, to provide healthcare. What we found to be lacking at, at the time, and this was in the 2015 timeframe, was repeatable and reproducible testing that provides objective evidence uh, of a particular product cybersecurity posture. And so these standards that provide that type of testing were established for uh, the healthcare vertical, the industrial control vertical, and the building security vertical. So within the world of medical systems, what are some of the specific challenges that you all faced? Some of the unique issues in the medical device industry really have to do with the fact that the, the medical industry is somewhat unique in how it develops products. In most other product areas, you don't want to develop products that, that could harm somebody. In the medical industry, you sometimes do have to create products that, that will allow for harm. However, the end goal is to save the, the person's life. A good example of this is uh, radiation therapy. You know, if you look at uh, a therapeutic uh, linear accelerator, for example, the purpose of that is to apply radiation in a way that uh, destroys human tissue, and in this case, uh, uh, pathological tissue. But it also can cause uh, other bodily injury that has to be sustained and recovered from with the end goal being to preserve the person's life. And so when you connect devices like that to a network, and if that network is not protected, 
Now there are unknown individuals, some call them bad actors or threat actors out there, who may access that network or find that device, um, you know, just through internet searches and so forth, and be able to access that device and cause harm when the purpose of that device is to cause healing instead. And, and I suppose, I mean, there's a natural tension there where doctors don't want to have any security protocols that would get in the way of them being able to provide the medical care that they need to provide. Absolutely. You know, as, as device manufacturers struggled with how to improve security of products, we found things like, uh, you know, ideas to have fingerprint readers on medical devices, for instance. And that's all well and good unless that medical device happens to be in an operating room in a sterile environment where the clinicians have to have gloves on and if the device you know, drops its network connection and they need to re-authenticate, then they have to break the sterile field in order to re-authenticate and that's not acceptable. So you know, clinicians certainly have very valid concerns in, in terms of cybersecurity. And in healthcare in particular, you really have to balance um, the need for security uh, as opposed to the accessibility of the device for clinical care, especially if you're talking about something like a defibrillator or a ventilator or something that may be needed urgently in an acute care setting like an emergency room or something like that. Saving the patient's life typically trumps the need for security. And so security overrides are an important facet of what the healthcare industry has been looking for and, and something that's been accounted for in, this, in the UL2900 standards that I mentioned before. And what this allows for is carefully managed security override of products when it comes to the issue of, of things like saving patients' lives. Now, what about, um, I, I've heard folks say, coming at this from the other side, that uh, you know, when you have um, a standard like this established, well, that just gives the bad guys a roadmap. Um, certainly, that's, that's one way to look at it. And, and so it's, it's well recognized that, that standards are always lagging technology by and large. That's one of the reasons that the medical device industry had to really move from prescriptive standards to risk-based standards. And what that allows for in, in the world of cybersecurity now, as opposed to you know basic safety and essential performance, is that we have t tools in the standards world that allow for manufacturers to establish a baseline of cybersecurity hygiene using the requirements of the standard, but then go well beyond that baseline um, as appropriate uh, for managing the risks of their product. And so while the basics are in the standard, the provisions to go beyond that are also in the standard, but the details of how you achieve all of the necessary protections aren't outlined in the standard. And so that's one of the mechanisms to prevent standards from serving as sort of a roadmap. There's a lot of intellectual property regarding uh, the assets of a product and the security controls that, that protect that product. Um, that are part of the certification process. They're not exposed in publicly available certificates and things like that. They are managed under NDA and contracts between the certifier and the manufacturer. And so they prevent the bad guys from having access to the, the kinds of details that might allow for them to successfully exploit a product.
Now, how do you see things playing out as we go forward? Where do you see the evolution of this space uh, as medical devices continue to evolve and also the, the, the need to secure them grows as well? Yeah, I see this much like um, how UL has historically seen uh, the adoption of electricity you know, across society. Uh, back in the late 1890s, when, when you all started up, electricity was first being used um, by consumers. And, you know, people wanted light bulbs and um, washing machines and, you know, cooking equipment and all the things that make our lives easier and, and um, our tasks more convenient than they used to be prior to the, the introduction of electricity. We're seeing that same kind of paradigm now where data is important to everybody. Our, our memories are all in social media. Our interactions are, are very frequently electronic and, and not direct and personal to a large extent anymore. And so we are, as as human beings, very, very dependent on, on data and um, the exchange of data for how we exist and survive in the world. And so as we uh, developed mechanisms to allow for society to trust in the use of electricity without worrying about buildings burning down and people getting electrocuted as they did in the early days of electricity. Now, as we look at electricity in the form of data and data that's being uh, exchanged on networks, much like electricity is, is transmitted and propagated for power, using those same kinds of uh, trust building techniques through standards, through certifications, through uh, trust models that involve compliance and so forth. Um, it seems that there should come a day uh, that much like when we plug uh, an appliance into the wall, we, we don't get overly concerned or observe it for a while to see if the wall catches on fire or the appliance catches on fire. We don't worry about touching it because we're concerned about getting an electric shock. Um, I'm really hoping that as we continue to, to evolve this baseline of cybersecurity hygiene and, and raise the bar and raise the bar, working with stakeholders all across the industry, like security researchers, like manufacturers, like regulators, um, that the continual evolution of, of that bar of cybersecurity hygiene will allow us to eventually trust our connections of devices and our exchange of data the same way that we do on the use of electricity uh, for power. It's important to understand that in healthcare, um, and maybe more so in healthcare than in, in some other sectors, uh, cybersecurity is a, a shared responsibility. And so there are a lot of stakeholders that, that have a role in this, ranging from manufacturers of products to the, the vendors of components that go into those products to the system integrators who put those products together in healthcare environments, uh, to the people who provide healthcare in hospitals and other settings. And so sharing information in a very, very proactive way and engaging across that whole value chain is really an important aspect of, of being able to continuously evolve that, that baseline of cybersecurity hygiene, as we talked about. And so raising awareness, using tools uh, coming out of uh, efforts of various groups. Uh, for example, I'm involved in the Healthcare Sector Coordinating Council. They're putting out some great documents like the Joint Security Plan that helps uh, even manufacturers, for example, who aren't very familiar with cybersecurity yet to understand how to adopt practices into their organization and build and scale those practices over time 
These are all important tools that are, are integral and necessary to the growth of that whole value chain in achieving and then evolving a baseline of cybersecurity hygiene. That's Anura Fernando. He's Chief Innovation Architect for Medical Systems Interoperability and Security at UL Underwriters Laboratories. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.